today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Let's bring uh, Reggie in right now. Rather than using the clips, we'll save the clips for later. But uh, obviously, this is a bizarre scenario uh, which is coming down in the United States, and it continues right now. Let's get an update. Reggie Giacchini is with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. He's based in Washington. He's with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Afternoon. Uh, interesting how what started as uh, uh, a nomination for uh, the Supreme Court has turned into a, another giant Me Too mov- uh, movement. How is this gripping Washington and, and what's the buzz around there? Well, look, there are a lot of emotions that are kind of circling over this city right now. And there are a lot of emotions that are sitting inside that hearing room right now. You have Democratic senators that are sitting on the Judiciary Panel, a Judiciary Committee right now, kind of pleading their hearts right now and putting their hearts on their line and the line as they sit there and say the reasons that they don't think that this nominee should be moving forward. Uh, all the reasons that Donald Trump shouldn't have nominated this person in the first place, given all the incidents that have taken place over the last couple of days. Uh, you've got demonstrators that are in the hallways of the Capitol, demonstrators that are in the Uh, outside of the building right now being arrested by police as they kind of gather in crowds. There is a heated moment that is likely going to stay in play until this vote is finally over sometime next week. So what is happening? Is this going to continue to move forward? Is there a way to stop this at this point? Uh, is there any any time for due diligence here? How is this going to move forward at this point? In, in the short term, there is no way to stop this. Uh, this is going to come to a vote at some point early or mid-afternoon hours. The Republicans on this committee are going to send this to the floor with an uh, 11-10 uh, vote to confirm this, uh, this nominee. The U.S. Senate will then pick this vote up on Saturday. They're going to open up some debate motions back and forth to allow everybody to give their moment of, of, uh, of time on the floor to be able to speak about the candidate. But this is going to go to a vote at some point next week, likely on Tuesday. And there is, an, the only way that this nomination is not going to go forward is if the Republicans don't band together. It's a razor-thin uh, majority right now. It only takes two defectors to make this confirmation disappear. That is a possibility. Uh, the fact that they will vote to progress and continue with this this afternoon, does that mean that they believed Kavanaugh ahead of Blasey Ford? I think that a lot of the Republicans that are on this committee right now had their minds made up before they even went into these hearings. These hearings, uh, as is in the eyes of the Democrats, were simply an olive branch being handed out to let somebody uh, put their, their allegations into the public eye and have Brett Kavanaugh be able to defend himself in a public setting. Uh, Republicans are going to push through with this right now. And uh, th- there's just there's very little that anybody's actually going to be able to do to stop this right now. How does the testimony from yesterday change this? I mean, my goodness, first her, then him. It was bizarre to watch. It, it was. And I mean, you have to this is like I was we were talking about this earlier that this isn't like a, a presidential debate where you see two people that are before a committee of people and you have to choose a winner. This was this was very difficult to watch on both aspects. This was an emotional moment for Dr. Ford. She was very timid. She was very, uh, you know, uh, upset while she was talking. She was getting exhausted towards the end of her testimony. Uh, and, and, and Brett Kavanaugh came in fired up. He was angry. It was a completely different situation than we saw in his Fox News interview where the president had called him weak. Some on the Democratic side are saying that the judge came in so fired up in a show for Donald Trump, who he knew was going to be watching this, and he knew that he was going to have to put on this kind of angry, strongman attitude to please the president. Uh, At the end of the day, Republicans and Democrats, again, had their minds made up listening to each of these. It's going to be the people outside of the committee, these two moderate Republicans, to be able to look at these testimonies that were given and say, I believe one more than I believe the other. Uh, Donald Trump said before this testimony yesterday that his mind could be changed. Obviously, uh, it wasn't. Do you think that was 
uh, an effort to, uh, I guess, Kavanaugh to get on his game? It, it possibly, because look, when the president was in the uni- at the United Nations and he gave that kind of wild 75-minute press conference, he said for sure something could change his mind. That maybe if if Dr. Ford had said something, it would resonate with the president and he would pull his nominee. Yesterday, inside the White House, there were sources saying that the president was actually fuming at the fact that Dr. Ford seemed as credible as she did. He he was he was upset that his people didn't tell him that she was going to be this strong. Uh, that being said, what look, difference he, would that have made, Reggie? Well, I mean, it, it might not have made any difference at all, but I mean, the president said that, you know, she, she seemed too credible and he thought that that was going to be an attack on, on Brett Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh came in, he was fired up, he was angry, the president was very pleased with it. Look, within a moment of this thing ending yesterday, the president tweeted that was a strong performance and this again is a con job by the Democrats. How is this playing in the United States? Is this just dividing everything even more? Absolutely it is, because look, this is the, the Me Too movement is already huge, not only in the United States, but worldwide. This is you know, also being called the Year of the Woman. This is, this is putting a big divide uh, when it comes to how people are looking, not only at the United States, but at Congress. There's a lot of uh, divisive politics uh, in Congress right now. There's a lot of Democrats and Republicans who just don't see eye to eye on certain things, and that's what we see playing out. There's also a lot of fear in the political world simply just going forward towards the election. This nomination process could resonate with voters heading towards the polls in November, and particularly with that women vote, which is important for both Republican and for Democrat. Is this testimony or did this testimony change any minds or just reaffirm those that already had made up theirs? Well, look, a 10 of the 11 Republicans on that committee had already said that their minds were made up going into this. The only one who was kind of waving was Jeff Flake. And then he came out this morning saying that he intends to vote with the group. So it might have had some sort of sway on one person's vote. At least that's what we're seeing on the outside. Uh, it, it's going to be the when it comes to a group vote. If all the Republicans decide to get in line after hearing that testimony from Kavanaugh, after hearing the testimony from Ford, the entire group is going to have to look at that and say, do we want to band together or do we kind of dissemble? Do we kind of step aside from each other? and see who votes with what. How do you, you know, how, how do you put your partisan politics aside, look at what happened yesterday and not come away and say, it's a he said, she said, and we have to step, step back and take a look at this. That's what Democrats are saying right now. They say, look, there needs to be an investigation into this. We need to take ourselves out of this picture right now. No matter who we are sitting on this committee, politics is going to play a role, and so is the word Democrat, so is the word Republican. If we have a third-party independent come in and look at this, like the FBI, they will be able to produce the information that we can then digest on our own. Republicans don't want anything to do with that because that would cause a delay in this nomination process and likely put it beyond the election. Why not just move on? I mean, I'm sure there's lots of qualified judges out there. As soon as you see signs of smoke like this, why not? Why keep doubling down? Well, the president put a lot of stock in this. He said that as he became the president, he wanted to stack the Supreme Court. He's already done it once with Neil Gorsuch. This is his opportunity to show his base, that 39, 40% strong, that, look, I said I was going to put people on the court and I'm going to do this. If this nomination falls through uh, and, and, and doesn't move forward, there is a good chance that the re- Republican base could start to kind of fracture apart. And you'll see Republicans come and say, well, the president can't get a Supreme Court justice on the court. Maybe the president's not doing as well as he can. So there are are ramifications that extend far beyond the Supreme Court when it comes to this nomination. What does this do for the Republican Party from an internal basis? 
Well, I mean, the Republican Party is already fractured as it is. There's a lot of different segments inside it between the Republicans, the moderate side, the Freedom Caucus. This is just kind of simplifying that and saying, look, there are different groups and we're likely not going to come together. There are, you know, people trying to whip the vote to say, look, we need to group together. We need to be on the president's side. We need to show the country that Republicans can stand together and we're not just kind of six or seven different parties that have come together to become one. Democrats are trying to put out this voice saying, look, the Republican Party is fractured right now. It's not working. This is something that we were trying to tell you going into the 2016 election. We're trying to tell you this now so that in the midterm election, the Democrats can take control. That is what their message is when they look at this entire situation. This sort of politics, I don't see it going away. Where is this going? I mean, don't we have to come up with some sort of solution? Because this is going to happen again. Do we not need some sort of policy to follow? Well, I mean, this this is just how nomination processes work. This is how politics work in America. Things are very de- very divided. It's very it's not often that you see bipartisan uh, uh, kind of kinmanship when it comes to something that's as polarizing as the Supreme Court. Because look, there are ramifications inside that court that are going to affect the base of either the Republicans or the Democrats, and very few of them are going to be in this kind of mushy middle where it may affect them, it may not affect them. A stacked right Supreme Court affects the right wing base of the United States because it backs what they're belief is, but it may be a disadvantage for the people on the left, and then it'll be flip if you have a left-leaning judge put on the court. So it's hard to find a balance when you are dealing with such a polarized uh, country when it comes to politics. When Donald Trump uh, was campaigning, he was talking about the establishment and how things had become gridlocked, things couldn't move, uh, the swamp, the whole nine yards. Is this changing anything? I mean, it seems to be the same. It just seems to, to be hurry up and wait. Well, I mean, look, the, the, when Donald Trump took and he said that he was going to drain the swamp and he was going to push across all of these things, very few things happened. Sure, he got a tax, uh, he got a tax uh, reform package that was passed, but health care was not dealt with. There was uh, infrastructure that hasn't been dealt with. And now going forward with the Republicans w- running the risk of losing control of the House, he's now going to be sitting with a split branch of government, which is a Democratic House and a potentially Republican Senate, meaning even fewer things are going to make their way to uh, to the final rounds when it comes to getting stuff done. So if things are moving slow right now, if the Democrats happen to win the House in November, we are going to see things slow down to a snail's pace by December. Uh, Is this issue, why do you think this issue is resonating the way that it is, Uh, especially when it comes to the, uh, and as you said, it's certainly important when they appoint a member to the Supreme Court uh, because it does greatly affect politics. But is this about the politics, meaning left and right, or is this the Me Too movement? Well, I think it's a mix of everything right now. Politics played a part in this right now because the president said, this is the person that I want to put up on the court. This is the person who stands uh, you know, on firm ground with the beliefs that my base has right now. So politics does play a part. But you have to look at the allegations that are up against this Supreme Court nominee. There are a lot of women out there, and there's a lot of men out there as well, who say, look, I've been a victim, or I know a victim, or my mother was a victim, and the victims' voices need to be heard, and there needs to be some kind of justice for the people who have become victims of assault. And by looking at the Republicans saying, you know, there there have been allegations against the Supreme Court nominee. Let's just get it through. Let's plow it through, as leadership was saying, as fast as we can and not allow for any kind of investigation to move forward. All it does is rally up that base of people who say we cannot let this happen. We cannot let allegations just kind of sit and float in the air and then ignore them because our politics want to play number one role. How is it resonating in the United States with both of them standing up there, raising their hand with the other one on a Bible saying they're telling the truth and both coming out with two totally different stories? 
Well, look, maybe they are telling the truth. The Democrats are trying to say that there were holes in Brett Kavanaugh's story, that he says that he didn't drink very much when he was in high school. He liked to have beers, but he kept a calendar, so it showed that he couldn't have been at that party. He couldn't answer the question of, you know, whether he drank to the point of blacking out at certain points. So Democrats tried to poke holes in that. Republicans tried to poke holes in the story of Christine Blasey Ford by saying, you can't remember a lot of the things. You can't remember who was at this party. You can't even remember who it was that pushed you into that bedroom. So you have, again, politics playing a number one role here by saying, here's what we want to believe. Here's what we want to hear you say. And here's what we're actually hearing you say. It was kind of like it was like selective listening when you were watching kind of cable news and how they were dealing with both of these people that were on the on the stand yesterday. Where do you think we would be if Kavanaugh had said, uh, you know, I don't remember what happened. But, yeah, you know, I did some stupid things when I was a kid and I apologize for all of this and blah, 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 blah. Where would we be then? It's possible that there would have been an opportunity for Republicans to uh, grant a Democratic wish by saying, let's get an investigation into this. If Brett Kavanaugh had said, sure, maybe this did happen. I'm not sure of the details of it. An investigation could have proven that maybe he did or maybe he didn't do it. By just not answering any questions or by kind of filibustering whenever a Democrat tried to ask him a question, the, Brett Kavanaugh didn't do himself any services by, by kind of ignoring what the problems or what the questions were. Republicans liked it, though. They said the longer he doesn't say anything... The easier it will be for us to just move him forward. Reggie Giacchini has been with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News, based in Washington. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Never dull. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Continuing to talk about uh, the Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, and the testimony yesterday of he and uh, Christine Blasey Ford. Uh, Literally, uh, 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 he said, she said. I'm not sure how any of this can move forward when we have two people standing up, uh, both with a hand on the Bible and the other one in the air, saying they swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And then we have two completely different stories. It is just bizarre how uh, this... uh, I don't want to say it's normally a routine situation when there's a Supreme Court justice that's appointed because it does greatly influence politics and and how things are decided. But uh, this has generated a tremendous amount of attention. Uh, In angry and occasionally tearful testimony yesterday before the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee, Kavanaugh denied sexual misconduct allegations brought against him by three women. Uh, Hearing adjourned after more than eight hours where lawmakers heard from both Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford, who says that Kavanaugh sexually assaulted her when they were both teenagers. Republican Senator uh, John Kennedy was solemn when he posed the the final question. I'm going to give you a last opportunity. We're right here, right in front of God and country. I want you to look me in the eye. Are Dr. Ford's allegations true? They're not accurate as to me. I have not questioned that she might have been sexually assaulted at some point in her life by someone, someplace. But as to me, I've never done this. Never. All right, uh, the White House pushing back against the call from the American Bar Association to slow the vote of the Supreme Court nominee until the FBI can do a full background uh, check. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, spokesperson, of course, uh, for the White House, says Kavanaugh's already been through six background investigations by the FBI, and uh, Donald Trump fully supports him. He felt like Judge Kavanaugh, uh, his testimony was powerful, it was riveting, um, and it was honest. Uh, Certainly, I think all of America thought Dr. Ford's testimony was compelling, um, and I believe something likely happened to this woman, but not at the hands of Judge Kavanaugh. 
All right, let's bring, uh, bring in Claire Finkelstein, professor of law and philosophy, University of Pennsylvania Law School, and with us now. Claire, thanks for the time so much. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me, Scott. How can anything move forward when we have two different people saying two different things in such compelling testimony? Well, the thing is that senators are saying uh, it's his word against her word. We don't have any corroboration of Dr. Ford's claims, but they haven't been willing to do the two things that could corroborate her claims. Number one, of course, is to order an FBI investigation. And number two would be to bring in other witnesses like Mark Judge, who might be able to answer the question of whether or not there's any corroborating evidence, whether or not there's any additional testimony that they should be considering. Of course, it's always possible if they brought in Mark Judge, who is the person who supposedly witnessed the alleged uh, attack on Dr. Ford. He might lie under oath, but then his demeanor and his manner of speaking and his ability to answer questions would be on display for senators. And they haven't been able, they haven't been willing to go ahead and do that. And as we saw yesterday, very much on display, um, Judge Kavanaugh himself was not willing to call for an FBI investigation. So how could it be anything other than his word against hers? It appears that uh, his strategy was to not deny that this that this woman had had this experience, but that it wasn't him, that there was confusion. Is that accurate? Yes, um, although he was even a little bit more cagey about that. He said um, it may well be that she had uh, the experience that she describes, but it certainly wasn't me. Uh, But he had rather harsher words to say about other allegations that, of course, weren't before the Senate committee yesterday, Um, you know, saying it was a a farce and a joke. And and then the harshest thing, of course, that he had to say was that uh, whether Dr. Ford's experience was true from her point of view, that this attack actually happened to her or not, that the use of this allegation was really a plot uh, by uh, Senate Democrats who are embittered about Hillary's 2016 defeat to get back at Republicans. And so he treated it as part of a grand conspiracy. Uh, And that was a note of anger and bitterness and resentment that was injected into the proceedings yesterday uh, that makes the committee's decision to send this to the full Senate a little surprising. So, as you mentioned, they will vote on this, this uh, to, to progress on this this afternoon. Does that mean that they believed Kavanaugh and not Blasey Ford? Well, that's a very good question that you ask, and, and therein lies a very potentially very painful result for millions of women in this country who watched those hearings yesterday, eyes full of tears, sexual assault hotline was uh, had its phones ringing off the hook uh, for millions of women watching uh, Dr. Ford's testimony and watching the response to that testimony. This is kind of a litmus test of where the country stands on sexual assault how much women are to be believed, whether or not they ought to summon their courage up to come forward with allegations. If 
indeed, uh, this obviously will go from the committee to the full Senate, which could have happened even if the committee had voted it down, because Mitch McConnell did have the ability to bring it to the floor of the Senate. But if the full Senate confirms uh, Judge Kavanaugh, this will be a tremendous rebuke, will be experienced as a tremendous rebuke for millions of women who are who are watching these proceedings. What was your thoughts on both of these testimonies yesterday? My experience, but obviously the country uh, saw it through very two very different sets of lenses. Uh, I thought Dr. Ford was highly, highly credible. Uh, even the slips in memory, not being able to place exactly what date this occurred or where it occurred, made her testimony a little more credible, uh, paradoxically enough, because uh, she really seemed to experience it as the memory of someone many years later recalling an incident of when she was 15 years old. Uh, She remembered very vividly the parts that were most traumatic for her, uh, but she hasn't been able to piece together those particular very detailed um, items that would help to corroborate, partly because she doesn't have information, for example, about when Mark Judd Judge worked at the Safeway and things that would help her piece together her memory. So at any rate, I thought she was very plausible. Um, I thought Judge Kavanaugh was genuinely emotional and outraged and angry about this. But I thought that his the veracity of his testimony was really colored by the way that he answered the questions of multiple senators who asked him if he would support an FBI investigation. And the fact that he never answered that question in the affirmative and only answered by becoming more and more exercised about the fact that he was willing to testify, uh, I think cast significant doubt on his. Uh, on his veracity. I'll just say one more thing about his performance yesterday is that he did appear to be very unhinged for much of his testimony and really rather crude and not fully in control of himself. And for many senators, I believe, and for much of the country, that seems to have raised questions about his temperament and his suitability to be on the court that I think uh, the Senate should pay close attention to. That was my next question, Claire. Over and above whether who you believe or or, or what you don't believe or, or what side of the political spectrum that you're on, this man is still vying for a job on the Supreme Court. Did he show the fortitude and, and strength that's needed to, to, to serve in that role? No, he really didn't. And he, and he wasn't even as dignified as Clarence Thomas was in addressing Anita Hill's allegations, he showed this uh, kind of retreat to deeply partisan politics in accusing Senate Democrats of plotting against him. He showed himself really unable to work with both sides of the aisle or to address allegations in a kind of sober, matter-of-fact way. Uh, he revealed that he subscribes to a kind of deep state conspiracy theory, or at least something resembling that. Uh, and he just uh, did not appear to be in control of himself. That's, those are not characteristics you want in a federal judge. Will that work against him in the sense that it's not so much that what happened, and, and not to, to discredit that in any way, not so much what happened, but how he handled it? 
I think that's right. I mean, I, I think some senators could come away with the view that, well, we're not able to corroborate these allegations, but maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe this man is, is just, um, does not have the temperament that you want in a federal judge, let alone a Supreme Court justice, who has to be able to deal with all sorts of highly emotional cases, uh, who you want to be independently minded, and who really has to have a, first and foremost, a deep commitment to upholding the rule of law and to deciding cases in a dispassionate way. And that's what it looked like he was not able to do, decide cases in a dispassionate way. So why not just move on? I mean, you know, obviously there needs to be some 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 greater examination of this. Why not just move on to somebody else? There's lots of judges out there that I'm sure don't have baggage. Absolutely. And there are only nine slots on the Supreme Court. Only one slot is open now, and there are potentially thousands of excellent nominees who could be chosen. It is surprising to me that the Republicans have hung in there with this nominee, that they are willing to to fight this bloodbath in order to get him confirmed. And I, I really wonder what that's all about. I know that for Donald Trump, there were great advantages in this particular nominee because of the position that he has taken on the right of the president to fire a special counsel. And clearly, Donald Trump thinks that this particular nominee will support his positions around presidential authority, maybe why he's so keen to have him, but why the Senate, which surely wants more independent in justices of the Supreme Court, would be willing to hang in there with him, is not clear to me. Uh, this dividing the U.S. more, even more, did the, this testimony yesterday change any minds or just have both sides digging in deeper? It looks tragically as though it's both sides digging in deeper. Uh, it, is, it is a very, very sad moment for the country, I think, both because of those millions of women who are watching this and thinking so they don't care about my situation, my sexual assault, uh, how sympathetic will this justice be to women's rights once on the Supreme Court? But also, as you point out, because of the deep political divisions that this is playing into and how profoundly unable to put aside partisan differences the Senate now is, uh, more so than ever in its history, and how little the rule of law seems to be uh, playing a role here, even in the very way that the proceedings are conducted. So to see the um, members of the Senate having chosen to have, for example, this um, female assistant, um, as they put it, uh, to ask their questions, uh, Republican senators then put that aside and uh, started asking their own questions when it came to the nominee himself. And so they're not even willing to follow their own procedures. Hmm. That's when you know that the, the rule of law and order and civility are really being thrown out the window. Uh, Blasey Ford testified first, then Kavanaugh. I presume he would have been watching this. How would her testimony have changed his tone? Had he watched it. 
mm-hmm. because you said he did not watch it. So that's what you're referring to. Yes, yeah. Scott, I think that's a that's a very good question. Um, it's very telling that he didn't watch it, isn't it? Because how do we know he didn't? Of, it's, it's, especially in a case like this, how do we know? Right. Well, that's a good point. He said that he had planned to watch it, but that he was too busy preparing his own testimony. So uh, he he obviously had no embarrassment saying that his plan was to watch it. Um, But um, it's a good question. The fact, if indeed it's true that he didn't watch it, um, one might point to a rather sort of lack of empathy there. Namely, whatever he thinks about the um, the allegation, the appropriateness of her making it, uh, and its truth, you might think that he would be interested in her experience in any event, or at least want to know what that experience is for her and to see her demeanor in delivering it. How could you and, not watch uh, it? How could you not watch it, right? So this seems like a like a man who is so dug into his anger and is in general a kind of hostile, resentful person, uh, and he certainly came across that way, um, even putting aside the justified anger of someone who had been falsely accused, if indeed he had been, one might expect a greater show of listening and empathy from someone, even in that position. How can we be prepared for something so large without listening to what the accuser had to say? That just doesn't make sense to me. I think that's right. I think that's right, although he felt that his strongest uh, tack was just to insist over and over again that he did not do it and then to attack his attackers. Wouldn't his exactly mood wouldn't his mood and the fact that it changed so much from the Fox interview, wouldn't that lend lend itself to the thought that perhaps he did watch it and he got really ticked off while watching it. That's why he was so that's jazzed that's why he was so jazzed up this time. Well you ask a good question, Scott, and I, I think that part of it may have been a strategy. While there was, I think, a a real display of emotion there, uh, I think he also thought that coming in with this uh, level of anger against Senate Democrats, coming in with this conspiracy theory uh, that this was all a big plot, I think he thought that might work for him. Uh, And it may be that it did, though watching it, I would have been surprised by that outcome. What can we learn from this? What can we take away from this? Because this will happen again. Where do we go from here? What do we learn from this? I think we're, as a country, going to need to spend a lot of time learning from this. And the takeaway is not clear yet. One of the striking observations that I've been making as this has played out is how deeply the politics of sexual relations has infused the entire Trump administration and so much of what is going on in power politics. And that sounds like a kind of feminist manifesto, but but here one can really um, not avoid the conclusion that the politics around sexual assault and sexual harassment are somehow deeply intertwined with the American political situation right now and and 
deeply divided ideologies that we're seeing in the country. So I think all of us are going to need to take a lesson from that and think about what that means. Interesting times, like we haven't said that before. Uh, Claire Finkelstein has been with us, professor of law and philosophy, University of Pennsylvania Law School. Claire, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, uh, let's talk uh, Donald Trump and NAFTA and Justin Trudeau. Uh, There's a great column yesterday in the Toronto Star by Tim Harper, national affairs columnist. Donald Trump's trash talk only helps the liberals. Here's what the president's been up to. Because his tariffs are too high and he doesn't seem to want to move, and I've told him, forget about it. And frankly, we're thinking about just taxing cars coming in from Canada. That's the mother load. That's the big one. That was his answer to a question when a reporter asked him if he had canceled or turned down a meeting with Justin Trudeau. Uh, The odd uh, piece of information that came out after that was the prime minister's office said, we never asked for any meeting. So I don't know what he's talking about. Let's bring in Tim Harper. As I said, the column in yesterday's Toronto Star, Donald Trump's trash talk only helps the liberals. Tim, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. No problem, Scott. How are you today? I'm doing very well. You? Very well, thanks. So do you think this question was a plant in the sense that someone knew, ah, there's been no question, but if I pose this the right way, he'll jump at it? No, I think if you posed it any which way and mentioned trade or Canada, he wanted to get this out. I think the genesis of this question was a rather awkward moment the uh, day before when, um, I'm sure I'm sure your listeners yep. have seen it, where Trudeau um, seems very over-eager to come over and uh, shake Trump's hand and walks past a number of other leaders, and Trump's sitting at a table, and Trudeau offers his hand, and uh, Trump grudgingly uh, shakes his hand and goes back to looking whatever he's looking at, uh, and it just looked like a snub, a uh, flat-out snub. Um, there, there was at least one other incident that, uh, that the cameras didn't catch that we've heard about where Trudeau tried to buttonhole him, uh, what we call a meeting on the margins, uh, he couldn't get Trump there either. So uh, both sides are right. I mean, uh, I'm sure the PMO is um, being straight. I think that there was no uh, ask for a formal meeting. Right. But uh, Trump's actually, uh, in one of those rare instances, is actually telling the truth. There seems to have been an attempt for Trudeau for a pull aside, and he didn't want to do it. What about Justin Trudeau's reaction to all of this uh, over the last couple of days, saying, hey, you know what, that's the situation we were in. It's it's a working sort of meeting. People are, are brushing shoulders, saying hi, whatever, and he was busy working on his speech. Well, uh, you know, I don't know what Trudeau's supposed to say. I mean, Trump, Trump at these international gatherings is, is nothing short of a boor. He... He makes enemies. He comes in there and like knocks over all the furniture and the uh, and the uh, uh, crockery. Pulls these bizarre uh, media press conferences and then with enough damage done, flies home. Um, he's uh, you know nigh into an impossible guy to negotiate a trade deal with, and this is the the problem Trudeau, Christopher Freeland, and their uh, NAFTA team have. Uh, but I can't fault the prime minister. We're on a deadline. This is another one of these U.S fake news deadlines uh, from Trump, but uh, there is a, a deadline for something uh, bilateral between Canada and Mexico to be shipped off to Congress this weekend, so you can't fault the Prime Minister for um, trying to buttonhole the President and maybe talk a couple minutes about this trade deal, and, you know, if this is Trump's negotiating style to, to snub and, and, and uh, appear condescending to us, um, 
it's just, uh, you know, he's not negotiating a real estate deal in New Jersey. This is a trilateral international trade deal, and he's using the same tactics. Uh, uh, he's used uh, his entire life bullying and issuing threats and telling lies and um, uh, snubbing uh, efforts to, to talk about things. You just don't see this on the international stage among international leaders. Maybe that's how you you buy an apartment building in New Jersey, but it's not the way you negotiate a trilateral trade deal. Uh, is there any advantage for us, no matter who the leader of the country is, not to push this right up against a deadline? I mean, that's the art of negotiating, isn't it? That is, and I believe uh, I've been fairly close to these talks over the last year uh, with another hat I wear. I think the Canadian negotiating team is is doing everything they can. Uh, I I think they do legitimately want a deal, but they are being tough negotiators because what's on the table right now of Canada is that the Trudeau government signed uh, what is on offer right now on the table. There's not a chance they could get reelected. They they would be giving up uh, cultural safeguards, a uh, a trade uh, dispute resolution mechanism. They'd be selling out part of Canadian culture. They'd be selling out the dairy uh, and farm industry that would kill them in Quebec, uh, and they would not have a guarantee that after uh, Trump said, hey, okay, that's cool, that's everything I want, that he wouldn't turn around and slap these punitive tariffs on us again anyways just because he wants to under this uh, ridiculous National Security 232 clause that he's used uh, already and is threatening again. So um, it's not just posturing when you hear the the Prime Minister and, and the Foreign Affairs Minister say, uh, no deal is better than a bad deal, because that's exactly where they are right now. Explain the headline, and I know uh, necessarily the, the author doesn't write it, but Donald Trump's trash talk only helps the liberals. What do you mean by that? Um, I think Canadians uh, of all political stripes are rightly tired and offended at the way a duly elected leader in this country is being treated by the President of the United States. And that would be the case if he was dealing with Prime Minister Andrew Scheer, uh, Prime Minister Jagmeet Singh, whatever uh, name you want to put out there. Uh, it just, this kind of bullying just galvanizes Canadian support for a government when you've got whatever you think of Justin Trudeau. And I know there's a, a, a hefty percentage out there who think Trudeau deserves to be called weak and dishonest and, and um, uh, Trump makes up admits he makes up trade statistics when he's talking to Trudeau one-on-one, uh, promises economic ruination to this country, has aides go on TV and uh, promise a special place in hell for a government that had the uh, temerity to stand up to him. It, it's, it's, this is, uh, it's easy to say that's just Trump being Trump, but after a while, uh, I, I mean, I've been around this game a long time. I have never, ever heard uh, a, a, an allied leader uh, use this kind of language, this kind of um, condescension around a Canadian leader. Uh, and I think the, the, it's been shown in polling before. Trudeau gets a bump when uh, yeah. when when Trump acts like a buffoon like this. There's actually a bump to the governing uh, party. The problem is, of course, there's a threat of tariffs on the table, and you know, at some point, Trudeau may be having to deal with very uh, significant job losses. You talked about your experience in this game and, and watching things over the years. How does a president like this 
change the game? How do they change the game moving forward? Is is this the new normal? Will the pendulum swing back? How does this, you know, especially when you're you're watching Trump address the United Nations and and they're laughing? Well, the the, you, the new normal. That's that's you hit the nail on the head there, Scott. This is what I think a lot of people worry about that. Uh, Whenever Trump leaves office, uh, he will have had enough success in this kind of uh, lowest common denominator politics that it'll become attractive to uh, uh, successors and to other parties that maybe this is the way politics is now going to be done going forward. Um, I mean, one hopes not. Uh, Look, there's been a lot of flashpoints between Canadian prime ministers and U.S. presidents in the past. I I pointed out a few of the recent ones. I mean, there's, there's no doubt that Richard Nixon didn't like Pierre Trudeau. Uh, there was a uh, a lot of um, uh, difficulty between George W. Bush and Jean Chrétien leading up to the Iraq War, but uh, none of them talked to the, the world media at the UN and uh, said you know basically what Trump said this week. You know, I, I, I don't like the Canadian style, and I, I don't like your. Uh, he didn't mention Freeland by name, but he essentially said. You know, and I don't like your foreign minister very much. How do you I think mean, Canadians responded to that? Because my guess is they all said good. Yeah, well, I, I'm not sure they all did because, you know, there's part of them divides. But in my view, what what when Trump says that, he might as well be saying, you know what? Your foreign minister and your NAFTA team is a tough negotiating team. Yeah. And that is actually the image, obviously, the Trudeau liberals want out there. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of pique involved in this with Trump. He's got... Frankly, he's got the Mexicans to roll over, and they'll be releasing uh, this evening what's actually in that uh, bilateral pact between um, Washington and Mexico City. But he's dealing with a Canadian government and a female foreign minister that isn't going to roll over, that isn't going to just smile and capitulate. And I think this is bugging him. And I think that was a lot of the frustration you heard uh, in this dismissive, uh, condescending tone that he used at the U.N., and, uh, yeah, I think you're right. Most Canadians think, good, I'm sorry that you don't like her. Uh, but you know what? You're not supposed to like her. You're supposed to negotiate with her. Why did he stop short of mentioning her name? He might have forgot it. Who knows? You know, the thing. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> I, you know, he, he throws a lot of stuff out there, and you wonder, well, if you want to make your point. On the other hand, um, I don't think there's any ambiguity. I, your representative, we know, we know who she is. Look, you know, there's this. This is um, this is a woman who's who's tough um, and isn't taking um, um, a lot of the garbage that's being tossed at her uh, at this table by Robert Lighthizer and the Trump government. And I think they, um, I think they had different expectations. They, I think they thought Canada wanted a deal so badly that we can strip this away from them, we can strip this away from them, but they need a deal, they're going to sign. We haven't signed, and, I, and you know, there's no guarantee that Congress is going to agree that he's got, that, that President Trump has the right to uh, ask Congress uh, for approval of a bilateral deal. The mandate was a trilateral deal. Um, and, uh, you know, Canadian, the Canadian team has been smart. They haven't bitten at these deadlines. I can't even remember how many U.S.-imposed deadlines there's been to get this deal done. Hmm. Um, and the Canadians have uh, worked the clock to their advantage. And, you know, I know there's a lot of, uh, there's a theory out there that we're between a rock and a hard place. This isn't good for Donald Trump either, uh, not having the third party come on and uh, facing 
midterms and congressional deadlines. So the Canadians have been tough, but they also they haven't panicked. They've been under control and they played the clock to their advantage. Tim Harper's with us, a national affairs columnist. His uh, latest column in the Toronto Star, Donald Trump's trash talk only helps the Liberals. Tim, you, you talked about how there's a bump every time uh, Trump slags uh, uh, Justin Trudeau or the team or the country itself, what have you. Uh, what does it say when all parties jump on board this to support Team Canada? Uh, is this something that should be dividing us politically? Are you surprised it's not? When does this become political hay for Canadian opposition? Well, in, inevitably, it will become so. Um, I think the Liberals deserve uh, a lot of credit for keeping everybody on board uh, to this point. Well, with the exception of Andrew Scheer and his... Uh, uh, Shadow Critic for Foreign Affairs, Aaron O'Toole. Every so often they uh, sort of uh, leap up from behind the uh, barricades and, and take a shot at Trudeau on trade, uh, and it doesn't seem to work, and they go back to the bunker. Uh, we're heading into a federal election year. Uh, nobody in the government expects that somehow it, we're all going to be uh, joining hands and and um, you know chanting at the uh, at the border that you know you're not going to bully us. It'll it'll break down and has to break down the conservatives have to find uh, an area to maneuver here. The, the problem Shear has right now, obviously, is if he goes too hard on it and, and all of a sudden, bingo, some great deal comes out of uh, the next session in Washington, he's going to look, uh, he, he's not going to look good. But, uh, you know, they, the Liberals went out, they they appointed this advisory board and they put, for example, two prominent Conservatives on a former cabinet minister, James Moore, and a former uh, interim Conservative leader, Ron Ambrose. They put new Democrats on it. They briefed the the, um, the provinces and have kept even Doug Ford on side. Um, so they've done a pretty good job of keeping everybody in a row. But if this thing blows up, uh, Trump goes ahead with these auto tariffs of 25% is going to gut the auto industry in this province. Uh, then you know the gloves will come off. Uh, then you you then you've got a tough sell job for the government. You can say we stood up to the bully and. We couldn't sign this, uh, and you tell Canadians what was there and what you couldn't sign, and you're going to have the Conservatives saying, well, you you fumbled this deal, and you were causing a lot of pain in this country, and um, that's, uh, you know, we had a we had a free trade election in 1988, Scott. We might have a, a free trade election in Canada in 2019. Hmm. So you don't think this is, or do you think this is one of those issues where Canadians want their politicians united and on the same page? No, because <laughs> you get into an election year. Yeah, everything's uh, off. You're going to find it a, a very tough search, my friend, to find conservatives who are going to say, no, 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 that's my thought. I know there's all kinds of jobs now being lost in the auto parts and uh, auto industry in Ontario, but, hey, you know, it's not the government's fault, so let's talk about something else. No, no, no. Um, and, and the Trudeau government knows this. In fact, the Trudeau But government... let me ask you this, though, Tim. Like, when everybody, and, and most have said from both sides of the political fence here that, you know, the, the government was proactive. Uh, they got lots of people from all political stripes on board. Yep. They hit the states. Yep. They did a pretty good job. So at the end of the day, if this all does go south, can we still blame Justin Trudeau? And believe me, I'm not you know the first one to wave that flag. But is this beyond the leader? Well, we're going to find out, aren't we? Um when there's actually economic pain here, you, you, you know, let's put it this way. Here's the box Andrew Shear's in right now as we talk, in my view. There's polling data out there that show that Donald Trump, uh, that 81%, 81% of Canadians uh, who are polled disapprove of Donald Trump in 
his job performance. Uh, they find him arrogant, uh, bullying, uh, untruthful. Uh, there's a, uh, 11% of Canadians who said they back him. That's a pretty small well for the Conservatives to fish from. So, uh, to use a tortured analogy there, the, uh, what they have to do is find a way to criticize the government for messing this deal up without sounding like they're backing Donald Trump. Right. Um, and that's, a, you know, that's going to be a, a, a nice dance to, uh, to watch, but you can't, you, you can't any, in my view, in any way, shape or form in this country, um, come out and say, well, you know what, uh, Trump was right, blah, blah, blah. No, you, you're going to have to keep it in, internally, but, um, I think inevitably there'll be a price to pay for the uh, liberals if they don't get a deal and these auto tariffs that Trump has threatened go through um, only because, you know, you're going to have to look at what's on the ground. And at the end of the day, this government is in charge of the largest um, bilateral file uh, that we have. And no matter who's in the White House, this government has the responsibility of every other government. They've got to somehow manage the Canada-U.S. relationship. And to go to the Canadian people and say, yeah, well, we did everything we can, but you can't manage this guy. You get a lot of sympathy, but not when there's uh, tens of thousands of jobs uh, being lost at that time. And that reality will bite. We talked about how there's no advantage for Canada to get this deal done uh, before any deadline whatsoever, that they're going to bump it right up to the end. How long can Justin Trudeau play this card before everybody says, or before the U.S. says, that's it, that's enough, and, and the really serious negotiation has to start? Oh, uh, by the way, the, the, they are very I, serious in negotiating. Yeah, There's, that's a bad choice of words, I guess, on my part. But yeah, before before are, pers- before push comes to shove and, and, and a straw breaks a camel's back here. Well, um, I'll tell you one thing. Canada won't get up and walk away. This is going to be a U.S. decision. Um, and um, I, I, don't, I, don't want, I don't think Trump wants a deal that does not in, in, involve Canada. So uh, I think we probably got, you know, they're going to blow away a deadline for the midterms. Um, this, but, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, Trump wants a deal. So, you know, we'll probably go through another U.S. imposed deadline. But uh, until there's something there that Canada feels they can sign, um, they're not going to sign it. So really, it's up, it, it's up to the U.S. as to when and if they want to walk away. And right now, they don't want to walk away, you know. And as the midterms get closer, that obviously creates more pressure for them. It does, although, you know, maybe Trump's prepared uh, to put up the message that, hey, we got a good deal with Mexico, but the Canadians, uh, they're just uh, so unfair. And they're, they're, we don't like their leader, and they... They tried to burn down the White House. <laughs> and, oh, but I love Canadians here. I'll sing you some old Canada. Maybe he thinks he can uh, go out there and uh, somehow make Canada a whipping boy. I, I can't ever remember a U.S. Uh, election where um, Canada was an issue or, or a whipping boy. I don't know if that works. But, you know, he'll he'll be able to say, look, I got a deal with Mexico. And I and, and on the trade file, I've, I've talked off to China. And um, I've got concessions from Japan. He might feel that he's... He doesn't have any other option. He'll just say, uh, you know, I, I can't deal with this government in Canada and, and, and start slagging Canada all over again. That's a very good possibility. Tim Harper has been with us. His latest column for the Toronto Star, Donald Trump's trash talk only helps the liberals. Tim, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for calling, Scott. Have a good weekend. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.